If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 17, and uh, if you don't, I've got the text on the screen. As a church, we've just completed preaching through the gospel of Luke. It took us two years to get through, and uh, we took our time, and it was just an absolute joy to spend two years saturating ourselves in the life and work of Jesus. It was just a great joy and a great privilege, and we've seen such growth in the church, both in depth and breadth. And uh, this was uh, one of those passages we dealt with probably a year ago. But uh, here we go. Uh, Jesus is uh, in transition, and uh, we pick up in verse 11. It says, uh, on the way to Jerusalem, let's just pause there. Uh, Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. He's been ministering uh, in surrounding regions, and he's now heading to Jerusalem. And what waits for him in Jerusalem is not great. Because in Jerusalem, he will be betrayed. In Jerusalem, he will be rejected. He will be tried and ultimately crucified. And so this is a tough journey. Uh, he has disciples with him, and, uh, and he's preparing them for what awaits for him. And so when Jesus says, follow me, they know what's happening waiting ahead for them. So they're on their way to Jerusalem, and a text uh, Luke tells us, it says, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So he's in between villages on his way to Jerusalem. Then it says, as he entered the village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And they went back and were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return And give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. I don't know if you remember that moment you woke up probably many years ago, perhaps still coming for some of the younger ones. You woke up in the morning and there was just a huge pimple on your forehead. And, uh, and you just thought, this is just so inconvenient. I mean, this thing is in the middle of my forehead, and it's impossible to hide. And, and so you kind of move into panic mode, and you get your mom's base or someone's base, and you, you're trying to cover it up. But it's, it, it kind of leaves you the feeling of shame and uh, guilt or just feeling like rejected, that's, that's insignificant compared to what these lepers might, might have felt like. We, we get a small picture of what they feel like in the essence of the word. Lep- leprosy in the Greek literally means scales of a fish. And so it's a skin disease that uh, radically affects not just your skin, but your social life, as that pimple would have done but uh, here's a commentary listen to this commentary because leprosy we're quite unfamiliar with these days and was very predominant in biblical times but listen to what this this commentary has to say about leprosy it says the skin becomes shiny and bloated with hard knobs like scales of a fish 
body hair becomes short and stiff, and if pulled out, it brings with it some rotten flesh. The eyes become red and shine like those of a cat. The ears are swollen and the nose is sunk because of the rotting cartilage. The tongue is dry, black, and swollen. Eventually, the nose, fingers, and toes fall off completely. Now, we don't know how far the, these poor 10 guys were in this process, but certainly they were very aware of it. They were extremely aware of their condition. There is no way you could avoid the pain of this process. There's no way you could avoid the ensuing rejection that comes with this. And so we see that these guys had been banished. They had been kicked to the curb, in a sense. They were outside the village. Remember, Jesus is passing through two towns. And uh, the reason for this was not just simply rejection, but protection. In order to protect the rest of the people from this disease spreading, because it was spread through proximity and touch, they needed to be banished. And so not only are they in physical pain, but they have been removed. They've been isolated. And so these guys are feeling deserted, clearly rejected, no fellowship, no job, no work, no worship. They couldn't go to the temple to worship. They have literally been excommunicated. And so that's the scenario into which Jesus walks. And so in this text, we're going to learn about amazing kindness and goodness through a miracle, but we're also going to learn about an astonishing situation of unbelief and thankless ingratitude. So three things we're going to look at. Uh, number one, first point is we are most desperate for Jesus when we feel our need for Jesus. Most desperate for Christ when we feel, literally feel, our need for Christ. There is no doubt that these guys felt their condition, both personally, together as a group, removed from culture, removed from society, feeling the pain of the emotional trauma, spiritually isolated from worship, and Jesus passes by. Now, they probably have heard of Jesus, and in light of their condition, they're thinking to themselves, we've got one shot. This is our chance. This is our opportunity. And so what do they do? They take that opportunity and they cry out. They lift, verse 13, they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, Jesus is very aware of leprosy. Leprosy is written about in the book of Leviticus. There were instructions given to the people of Israel because of the nature of this disease spreading so easily. Uh, this was a fairly common practice that you would remove the disease from amongst the community or the diseased people from amongst the community. But there was an underlying tone regarding leprosy. And the underlying tone amongst the nation of Israel was that leprosy was a sign of sin or as a result of sin. And so there was this kind of nuanced feeling that if you had leprosy, it was because of something you did wrong. And it was a sign of God's judgment upon you. 
And so Jesus is not only going to heal these guys, but he's going to teach. And Jesus often did this in the Gospels, as you read, that his healings were not random healings. They were often opportunities to point to his divinity, to who he really was, or to teach a particular point or principle. And this is no different. So in one sense, these guys are walking illustrations of sin. Now let's think about sin. We are all prone to it. We are all very aware of it. We rejoice, as we heard this morning, in our forgiveness of sin, that Christ has paid our debt, and so our sin positionally has been dealt with. But in reality, we're still sinners. That's called the difference between justification, having our sins declared free. We're free of sin, and we receive the righteousness of Christ. But in reality, we're still being sanctified. We're still living out our position. And so the analogy here is very similar because these guys felt the pain of their condition physically. And I want to suggest to you that sin does promise a lot but delivers very little. In fact, sin brings forth pain physically. We look at families that have been torn apart. We look at lives that have been destroyed. People walk down the path of sin and they think that through that they're going to gain acceptance and forgiveness or, or belonging or status or power, but it delivers very, uh, very little. Sin delivers pain. Socially, these guys were outcasts. It promised Sin promises us acceptance and promises us a sense of uh, uh, belonging or even status, but it never delivers. It actually delivers insecurity and loneliness. And then spiritually, it separates from God. Just as these guys were separated from the presence of God, the temple, the place of worship. And here's the connection I want to make for you this morning. The connection here is that I think the degree to which they were aware of their condition, which I submit to you was a very high degree. Physically, they were in pain. Socially, they were in pain. Spiritually, they were agonizing. And the degree to which they were aware of their condition drove them to Christ. And the point is this, that when we feel our spiritual need or our sin, we are driven to Christ. When we realize that, yes, Christ has paid for my sin, but at what cost did he pay for my sin? By the death of himself. That's how bad the situation was. It wasn't that he just needed to be an example. He needed to die in our place to pay for our sin. So whether we're looking at our sins forgiven or our sinful continued journey of fighting sin, my submission to you this morning is that when we feel the nature of remaining sin and when we are aware of our need for Christ, that's when we are driven to Christ. It's a counterintuitive principle because the world says to us, you're great. There's nothing wrong with you. You're amazing. Look in the mirror and tell yourself, I'm amazing. That's the message of the world. The message of the world is every day is Friday. The message of the world is you're incredible. You're the greatest you that there could ever be. But the message of the gospel is that 
you're not so great because you need saving. You need saving. You can't save yourself. The world says, look within you and find true meaning. Gosh, when I, when I last looked inside myself, what I found was problems. I need to look to Christ, not in myself. If I look within, all I see is I need help. And I want to suggest that, that that's what we see modeled here, is that these men were driven to Christ because of their condition. And so to us. Now, I'm not magnifying sin. I'm not trying to glorify sin. I'm just trying to help us to realize that we have a great God because we have a great need. Let's think about it this way. The only reason, imagine if uh, yesterday I came out the surf at Nahoon Reef. It was a beautiful day, great waves. And imagine if someone walked up to me and said, I have this cure, this tablet, because you're sick. And I'm like, dude, I'm not, I'm not sick. I've just had a great surf. Uh, you know, when I drove here, I, I, you know, I passed the nacha. I, did, I, I resisted the temptation. I drove straight past the nacha. I didn't have a pie. Um, I'm banting, although Jesus is the bread of life. I know, I, you know, I'm, I'm banting. I'm strong. I'm healthy. I, I'm not sick. I don't need your cure. Thanks. But if the same person came up to me and said, listen, I'm a specialist doctor and I can see certain signs in your body, in your posture, in your eyes, on your skin. There are these signs and I'm really concerned and I have a cure for you. Um, you, you need it. And I'm like, whoa. Like, I don't care how much banting I've been doing. This, I need to take this seriously because this guy's a specialist and he's pointed out to me these areas that are of concern. And I need... My response then is different. If I'm aware of my condition, I will respond differently. Let me, let me put a little Bible underneath this principle. Uh, 1 John 1 verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, he's not talking here about our justification. No, no, we, we've been declared righteous, but that's the point. The operative word is declared. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. We've been declared righteous. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is our righteousness is not our own. It's Christ's righteousness, which has been credited to our account. But what does that mean? That means we are still sinners. Although we've been declared righteous, great news, we still have remaining sin. And what do we do with that remaining sin? Well, we don't glorify it, but we realize it. We are aware of it. And when we become more and more aware of it, we are driven to Christ. You see, the gospel's not a makeover. The gospel's not, oh, clean yourself up. No, the gospel is you need a savior. You can't clean yourself up. That's the whole point of Christ coming, is we couldn't clean ourselves up. We needed him. And so don't fool yourself into thinking, oh, I don't have sin, or I don't have a problem, or I don't need... No, no, you do have sin, and you do have a problem, and you have a great God who you need to run to. Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does he mean there? Blessed, happy, that's the word. Happy are the poor in spirit. What does he mean? He means that we are in a state of 
poverty, spiritually speaking, poor in spirit. Spiritually, you are poverty-stricken. In other words, you're aware of your sin. You're aware of your nature. You're aware of your need. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just like these lepers, fully aware of their condition. And so they cry out to Jesus. If you're not feeling passionate about Jesus, if you're not feeling, you're feeling distant from Jesus, I suggest this. I suggest you consider your condition outside of Christ. I, I, I submit to you that you consider remaining sin and the cost of Christ for your sin. Think about it and allow it to drive you to him. If we have light thoughts of sin, we will have light thoughts of our Savior. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, he lived a, a full life and he wrote many hymns and he, he was a, a great pastor, teacher, theologian. And at the end of his life, he writes this quote. And it's so true. At the end of a long journey of walking with Jesus, a long life of sanctification, Here's what he says. He says, my memory is nearly gone. So clearly at the end of his life. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Those two things go together. It's counterintuitive. The gospel often is. But it's there to, to help us leverage our need for Christ. So I submit to you that first point. Secondly, I think what we see in the story is regarding the miracle. That we get to enjoy the blessings of God when we obey the words of God. Notice, look at verse 14. It says, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now that's a strange response. Unless we know the background. And then it says, and as they went, they were cleansed. So what Jesus is doing here is, firstly, he's honoring the Old Testament law. Because in Leviticus, it, in order to curb the spread of this disease, they were banished to the outskirts. And there was the odd occasion through medicine or through miracle that someone would recover. And the only way that they would be allowed to enter back into society was they would have to come to the priest. The priest would kind of officiate almost like a general doctor, and they would then be given a, a certificate of clearance. So the priest would issue a certificate of clearance saying they are now clean, and they can go back to work, back to family, back to worship, back into society. So Jesus is honoring that principle, but he's also testing their obedience. Because notice that they weren't healed yet. It's only as they went that they got healed. So imagine the dilemma. Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priest. And they're like, dude, I'm still sick. The text says, only as they went. That's amazing faith. And so true for us that often we look at our circumstances, we look at our situation, and it's often a difficult situation. And then we realize, I need to obey Christ. I need to 
follow through. I need to take God at his word and trust him, even though my circumstance doesn't look good. And that's what these guys did. It says they went and as they went, they were cleansed. And they got to enjoy the blessings of God when they obeyed the words of God. I want to ask us, do we, how do we respond? How do we respond to the word of God? Do we sit in judgment of the Bible? Do we, do we set ourselves up as an authority? Do we go, well, I don't see any change or, or, or I see too much change. And so let's, let's adapt what God says to fit what we see. Is that what these guys did? Did they adapt? Did they, did they allow their circumstance, their situation to dictate? Did, did their position have greater authority than Christ's words? No, we allow the scriptures to judge us. How dare we judge the Bible? How dare we raise our authority above that of scripture? God's word is authoritative and it passes judgment on us. When it comes to ethics, when it comes to morality, when it comes to gender, when it comes to all sorts of church life practices. The Bible is our final authority by which we live our lives. Notice also that when Jesus heals these guys, there's no, there's no fanfare. There's no, he doesn't even touch them. He doesn't lay hands on them. He simply says, go. Go and show yourselves to the priests. Just the spoken word brings this healing. No fireworks, no dim lights, no gentle music, no anointing oils, nothing but a word. And that brings me to the third and final point, which is a little bit longer than the other two, just so you're aware. We come to faith in God only by the grace of God. And we see this in verse 15. Then one of them, let's just let that sink in. Then one of them, one of the ten, one, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. Praising who? God. Who is Jesus? God. Some people think that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, you know, he, he, he didn't say, I am God, but he did say, I am, I am, or I was before Abraham, or even here, he, you know, he, he accepts worship. And the people of that day knew that only God is to be worshiped, but Jesus receives it. He never rebukes it. One man, one man stops in his tracks. One man is on his way with the other ten, other nine, and, uh, and, and he realizes that not only is his body healed, but something's changed in his heart. He's, he's become aware of who this man really is. That he doesn't just use Jesus for what he can get from him, but he's cut to the heart and his eyes have been opened that only God can heal, therefore this man must be God, or sent from God at least. 
But why didn't the others get that? Why didn't they see this? Why didn't they come to this realization? Why, why, why only one? And that's because salvation is by grace alone. It wasn't because of their pedigree. It wasn't because they were smart. It wasn't because they thought it through. It was grace. Grace saves. Not even a miracle brings these guys to the realization. You see, mercy had not only changed their body, but mercy had changed this man's heart. I mean, think, think about this with me. Imagine the list of possibilities that have suddenly opened up for this group. They've, they've been in a terrible situation for a long time, and now they are perfect. They've got baby-like skin again. And the list of possibilities are endless. I can go back to work. I can go see my wife. I can see my kids. I can go back to worship. I can be with the people of God. I can go back. I can play golf. I can, there's so many things I can go and do now. And it's like, that's what the other nine get excited about. And so they've got to go to the priest. And so they go to the priest. But this guy realizes that Jesus, this Jewish man, is not just a man. He's also God. And so while the others go see the priest in the, in the temple, the one man falls at the feet of the true priest. The one that that priest points to. Isn't that amazing? A Samaritan, the text tells us. A Samaritan. In other words, Jesus and Luke are pointing out that the other nine were Jews. Because he calls him a foreigner. Is it only this foreigner who has come back? And so you have a Samaritan falling at the feet of a Jew, which would be scandalous because of the animosity between Jews and Samaritans. That would never happen. But he's not just a Jew. He's God. How did he realize this? Was it, was it because his skin was healed? Well, no, because the other guys got their skin healed. It was because his heart was healed, and it happened by grace, which shows us that those Jews, salvation is by grace, not through race. Salvation has always been by grace, not race, which is a message South African churches need to preach strongly. Because before God, we're all equal. And God saves by grace, not through race. Verse 16, have a look again. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, a Samaritan at the foot of a Jew, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Verse 18, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? One man realizes that there is a greater high priest, Jesus, the true priest, the priest of all priests, the one to whom the priests in the temple pointed to. 
Hebrews 4 verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. And then the final declaration, look at this, verse 17. Jesus answered, we're, we're not ten cleansed. I mean, just think about that. We're not ten cleansed. And, and it's not a problem for Jesus. Jesus was incredibly compassionate and kind, and he healed all ten. And then he asked, but where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God? Notice Jesus is saying this, praise to God. The man comes and praises him, praise to God except this foreigner and he said to him rise go your way your faith has made you well and if you look in your footnotes depending on your translation there's another way to translate that and that is your faith has saved you now it wasn't his faith the faith was given to him faith is a gift from god by grace but it has saved him in other words 10 men are healed and one is saved. Ten are healed and one is saved. Now, think with me logically, please. Signs and wonders, miracles, the conclusion, one of the conclusions is signs and wonders or miracles don't save people. They don't. They don't convince people that there are sinners in need of a savior. Some people, and I've had this often in my pastoral ministry some are encounter people who say oh but if only i could see a miracle then i would believe no you wouldn't you don't know your own heart if if i saw a sign or if god just showed himself to me then i would believe <laughs> that's not how it works we we're saved by grace not we walk by faith not by sight and so this is good news because we can't produce signs and wonders as churches and as ministries, and we don't have to. If God chooses to do it, great. We, we believe he's miraculous, he's sovereign, God can heal, but he doesn't always heal, and it's not a problem for the gospel. It's not, because the gospel saves by grace, not through miracles. We don't chase miracles, we seek God. And if he adds miracles, fine, great, but they don't save. Grace saves. Only grace. And the gospel can save a sinner. Think, let's just think this through a little more. Because I think it's really important. Because a lot of us have got unbelieving friends, and they often have that objection. Oh, if only there was more evidence to Christianity. If only you could produce more evidence. Well, the resurrection. Well, people say this about the resurrection. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Everything hinges on that. Well, can you show me some evidence? Well, you know what? You show them the evidence and then they still don't believe. You show them the arguments. You show them the, the, the proofs. You show them the reasons for our faith because it's not a leap into the dark. Our faith is not an unreasonable faith. And we give them evidence and then they take the evidence and they eat it up and they say, I'm still hungry. Because that's the nature and power of unbelief. The nature and power of unbelief is even though my skin is now perfectly healed, the other nine miraculously healed, they're off to the golf course. They're off to work. They're off to their families. They, 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 oh, and it's like, well, hey, tell that guy, they say to the one guy, tell that guy we say thanks. Because the nature of unbelief is not the absence of evidence. 
Listen carefully. The, ap- the nature of unbelief is not the absence of evidence. It's the presence of a hard heart. Let me show you. Jesus speaks to this uh, in, a, in, a, in a classic parable. In Luke 7, Jesus illustrates the character of unbelief, which I'm submitting to you is the condition of the other nine men. He says this in Luke 7, verse 31 and 32. He says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? In other words, these, this unbelieving generation. Because Jesus has been around. Jesus has been teaching. Jesus has been raising the dead, healing the blind, healing lepers, the deaf are healed. The, I mean, you name it. He's, he's shown it numerous times. If you want to see a miracle, read the Gospels. He says, what can I compare this generation to? What are they like? He says, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. So the picture here is of a game. The children are in the marketplace and they're playing a game. He says, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. So we've got two different games going on. So the parents have gone to the market and they've gone kosher shopping, no doubt. Jewish day, Jewish context, they've gone kosher shopping and they're at the mall and the kids are bored. Parents, you know what this is like? And so the kids decide, hey, let's, let's play a game. And in those days, there were two mostly popular events, and that was weddings and funerals. And so the one kid uh, who's a ringleader, he says, hey, let's, we want to dance, so let's play the flute, which was a happy tune. And as they start to play the flute, the other kids are like, no, we don't like this tune. It's horrible. It's not a nice game. We don't want to play this game. And so he says, okay, okay, okay. We'll play a dirge. We'll, we'll get somber and we'll weep. Let's, let's pretend we're sad. And then the kids are like, no, 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 no. We don't like that game. We, we, we don't like it. It's a horrible game. It's, it stinks and it's not a nice game. And the point is, no matter what tune you play, it's never good enough. It's like little Johnny on his birthday. You know, you've, you've done all the party preparation. You've baked the cake. The presents are there. The kids are playing. And, and you come downstairs and you're trying to find Johnny and the kids are running around. But Johnny's nowhere to be seen. Because Johnny's in his bedroom, sulking. I mean, it's his birthday. He shouldn't be sulking. He should be celebrating. And so you go upstairs and you say, hey, Johnny, what's going on? He's like, no, this party's stupid. And you're like, no, it's not. Like, it's just completely unreasonable. And then you realize that the problem is not that the party's stupid, but that Johnny is not in charge. Johnny wants to be in charge, but everyone else is having more fun than Johnny. And that's what Jesus is saying. The, the, the nature of unbelief is it doesn't matter what tune you play. It doesn't matter how much evidence you produce. The problem is not the evidence. The problem is I want to be in charge. I don't want to live my life for Christ. I don't want to submit myself to Jesus. I don't want Jesus to tell me how to live my life. I want to live my life the way I want to live my life. So the problem with unbelief is not the absence of evidence. It's the presence of sin, which says I'm in charge. Don't tell me how I must live my life. I want to write my own tune. Don't tell me the tune because I'm not going to dance. And don't change it. And if, even if you change it, I don't, want to, I don't want to weep. No, no, I want to. Give me, the, give me the instrument. I want to play my own tune. 
And that's the nature of unbelief. So what do we do? We bank our hope on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope for all mankind. Romans 1 verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all men. The gospel we proclaim. We don't chase signs and wonders. We don't put on games and gimmicks. We don't play this tune, then that tune. I mean, we're not schizophrenic church. No, there is one message. It's the gospel. We proclaim Christ and Him crucified because that is the means to salvation. And if they reject our message, so be it. We don't change the message because they don't like it. No, no, we preach the gospel. And so to close... The other thing I want us to see is, is that although all 10 were healed and only one is saved, I think all 10 were thankful. I'm pretty sure that the nine who didn't return were very thankful. And so on their way to the priest, they would have said to the one, hey, tell that guy, shot. Good intentions. But did it mean anything? It, it's one thing to, to say you believe. It's one thing to say that you're a Christian. It's another thing to really be one. Good intentions are empty often. We have to live out our convictions. And this one man was convicted and he was saved by grace and then he responded. Sometimes it's not enough for us to say, oh, thanks, Jesus, but then we never follow through. We never follow through with a life of thanks. We never follow through with a life of service to Christ. If you're thankful to Christ, then serve Christ. If you are grateful to Christ, then worship Christ. Engage, serve, get involved. Build His kingdom, not yours. I think for me, the, the greatest takeaway is that salvation is the greatest miracle in the story. That one man is saved, healed and saved is amazing. You know, we, not everyone will be healed. But if they're saved, then that's enough. In fact, it's more than enough. Why? Because you know what? All 10 of these guys will get sick again at some point and then die. Because 10 out of 10 die, right? All of them will get sick again. Although they were healed, they will get sick again and they will die. But one will live forever. One man will live forever in glory with Christ. The greatest of miracles. We cannot produce. Only the gospel can produce it. And we are often the tool, the means by which we see people come alive in Christ through our proclamation. Not just saying we believe, but actually believing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage and we thank you for the way in which it speaks to us and our own condition. Lord, we pray for our own hearts 
And we remember the words of the song Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That was our condition. We were lost. We were blind. And now we see. We feel our need. It saved a wretch like me. We don't glory in sin, but we realize that without our desperate need for Christ, we would never run to Christ. And so we accept the words of Jesus that blessed are the poor in spirit who feel their need, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters here this morning, Lord, I pray that we would feel our need for Christ and so run to Him. May we run to Him. May we cry out to Him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for salvation, which is by grace alone, through the proclamation of Christ alone. I pray that you would help us to not just live with good intentions, but actually with a life that follows through. I pray that we'd all be the one who returned to kneel before the great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, and give him worship, all the worship he deserves. We thank you for the miracle of salvation. If you're here this morning and you You've tasted this grace of the gospel and you, you're a believer. Thank him. Thank him. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you for opening my eyes. Thank you for healing my heart. Thank you for the miracle of grace. And if you yeah, this morning and you don't believe, then I would encourage you to doubt your own doubts. Realize the subtlety of unbelief. And surrender to Christ because he is who he says he is. And so Holy Spirit, be with us and minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. Have a wonderful Sunday. Enjoy your time with family, friends. And uh, have a blessed week. God bless you.